Okay, good evening, everybody. It's so nice to be back. A new series, uh, Learning Torah Together. The Torah's Chaim Project is something that has been on my mind for a while. Sometimes when you get away from the, the routine of life and uh, you have a chance to process and think outside the box a little bit, um, you're able to be more creative. And speaking to so many different people, not just here in the community, but also the many uh, young men that I had the pleasure of learning with and, and getting to know in the summer, boys from 18 to 24, there is definitely a common theme. Everyone has their own background, there are unique challenges in life. But the common theme when it comes to my connection with Yiddishkeit, my, my feelings towards HaKadosh Baruch Hu and my Avodis Hashem, I think we could all use a little bit of chius, a little bit of life, a little bit of energy. So the Taras Chaim project is basically geared towards this goal, taking many of the very fundamental concepts in Musr and Machshava, ideas that can be very deep and very penetrating, but then to try our best to bring it home and, and make it as practical as possible, to implement the, uh, the lofty ideas and somehow translate them into our everyday Avodah Hashem, our everyday connection with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. That's the objective of the Torah's Chaim project. Now, it's not called the Torah's Chaim series, because a series has the connotation of this is just a group of speeches. Project has a different connotation, namely, it's a collaboration, it's working together. It's something that I would very much like to have a back and forth to hear ideas. We're going to give real exercises to try to do. And I want to hear how it goes. You could email me, you could call me, you could text me. And I think through creating this environment of pilpul chaverim, of having discussions and, and analysis of what seems to work, what doesn't seem to work that well, uh, it's much more than a series of lectures, but Amrit Hashem, this will be the beginning of a project that will likely take many different forms as we go further. But I'm very excited to embark on the journey together with you. A special thank you to Eliza Sloan for sponsoring the shir tonight. She's doing so in honor of her mother's yard site, Sarah Bas Yoshua. Her neshama should have an aliyah. Back in the 1920s, there was a pandemic that impacted millions of people around the world, known as the sleeping illness, where somebody was totally healthy and energetic, with no, uh, no problems leading up to this point in life, and then suddenly they would complain of joint pains, or they would have trouble moving. And some of these patients really went from totally normal, healthy human beings, and within a few weeks, 
became almost paralyzed. And they remained in this catatonic state where many of them were almost as if they weren't alive, although they were breathing, but there was no reaction. There was no way to have a conversation or communicate with them. And many of these people stayed in this particular state for decades. Baruch Hashem, in the later 20s, the pandemic vanished. However, you had some of these victims who were zombies for 20, 30 years. The medical world didn't know how to treat them. And they were in wards. They were put away to basically, they would eat, they would drink, they'd be taken care of. But they were there to rot away until eventually they would die. In the summer of 1969, well-known neurologist by the name of Oliver Sacks, he was extremely curious about this population of people who were still alive in this state of uh, paralysis. And he worked with these individuals and he pursued different treatments. He had some success. Besides, though, being a very talented neurologist, he was a writer. And the way he described himself is every time he was observing the patients, he would have his doctor hat on, but at the same time, he would have his writer hat on, and he would chronicle every single thing that took place, every interaction. So I want to read to you a couple lines that he writes. They would be conscious and aware, yet not fully awake. They would sit motionless and speechless all day in their chairs, totally lacking energy, impetus, initiative, motive, appetite, affect, or desire. They registered what went on about them without active attention and with profound indifference. They neither conveyed nor felt the feeling of life. They were as insubstantial as ghosts and as passive as zombies. That was his clinical description of uh, the patients he was working with. Baruch Hashem, we do not suffer from the sleeping illness. That's a pandemic of the past. However, I think psychologically, there are many times in life where we're probably not fully awake. I'm not really engaged. I'm not really present. I might be busy. My schedule may be hectic. And I have a lot of things going on, a lot of responsibilities, and they're definitely things that occupy my time. But how often are we really actively engaged and present and absorbing the situation that I find myself in presently? So in a sense, I think we all suffer from the sleeping illness. Who said the following? I'm sure Mrs. Alberino knows this. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. He said, therefore, I went into the woods because I wished to live deliberately, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of a life. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right? <laughs> Close. Luel Cinder. <laughs> So that was Thoreau explaining in his very poetic, very powerful way, the mass of men and women 
to make it more politically correct, lead lives of quiet desperation. Now his answer to that was, let me leave urban life and go out into the woods, live there in total isolation in order to live deliberately and to suck out all the marrow of life. What I'd like to do is try to achieve the same goal that Henry David Thoreau was looking for, living deliberately and sucking out the marrow of life without having to live in the woods. Right, we were in camp for a few weeks and that was difficult enough. If you were to think of a, a particular moment either that's happened to you in the past or that is reoccurring, what is a moment, what is an experience that brings you the most intense joy? If anybody would like to share, no pressure. Real What's that? Real connection. Real connection. Beautiful. Birth. Huh? Birth. Birth. Okay. This side can't relate to that. <laughs> okay. With an epidural, without? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is probably very connected to what Yosef was saying, right? The connection. What do you say? Learning Torah, feeling good. A good classic answer. That's good. Even analyzing learning Torah. Does all learning Torah feel like the most intense joy? Or is it a particular type of learning Torah that brings that out of you? What would you say? Okay, meaning getting in deeper. What's that? Moments of clarity, Moments of clarity that come through the confusion. I think if you were to take a poll of 15 or 25 different answers to this question, you would get many different responses. But if you were to scrape down a little bit deeper beneath the surface, oftentimes the common theme behind any moment of real intense joy is a feeling of being totally engaged, totally present. It's not superficial learning. It's not holding the baby for the first time as I'm distracted with something else. It's not a relationship where the connection right now is not as powerful or palpable. It's when, in a sense, everything else disintegrates around me and the only reality there is, is right now. When we get into that zone, that usually brings the greatest feeling of joy. There's a beautiful sefer that came out recently, the Olam HaVoda, and he expresses this idea, an idea that we find in many sources. He says, Masha if a person's able to come to that recognition that what was in the past is in the past. Masha Yiyaya, what will be in the future That'll be. But right now, even though we had a difficult conversation two days ago, 
And although I am somewhat anxious about what the future will bring, but right now, there's a connection. Right now, I can feel the love. Right now, I can feel the spirituality. In this moment, we have the opportunity to totally rejoice in the bracha that Hashem is giving us. This is true in the spiritual realm, it's true emotionally, and it's true even physically. Right? If you have uh, somebody who spends hours making a delicious dinner for you, and you want to be cute, right? you're a teenager, and you're trying to show off, I'm going to eat the entire steak without chewing. Not recommended. <laughs> But what you do is you cut it into small pieces and you just swallow it. How much of that steak are you enjoying? Not much of it. When you have the, the professionals in the, the, the culinary world, every bite is trying to totally feel and absorb all of the nuances of flavor to the point where those people make me nauseous. It's just such an indulgence in, in the Gashmias. But putting that aside, it's a tremendous limud haskel. It's something we could glean from there. In order to really appreciate something, I have to be conscious of what I'm doing. I have to do it slowly. I have to do it, I don't like to use the word with mindfulness because that word is overused in many different contexts. But I have to be paying attention to what I'm doing. David Melech writes in Tehillim, Taste and see that Hashem is good. What does it mean to taste that Hashem is good? The idea is, is that when I'm tasting something, and I'm doing so la'at la'at, little by little, I become a connoisseur of it. I'm not just swallowing the, the, the thing and not getting the pleasure, not getting the full flavor but I'm actually tamu uru'u, I'm trying to taste the goodness that I have in my life, only then, even in the physical realm, can I really enjoy something. A common example would be benching. And by a show of hands, and you don't have to answer this question, but by a show of hands, how many people look forward to the benching after they're done with their lunch or dinner? Not one hand in the room. Part of it? Okay. Okay. okay that, that's a, a good, honest answer. But why is it that, that we don't really look forward to the benching? Why is it that some of us have a phobia of washing in the first place? Right, because at, at that point, I'm, I'm no longer hungry, and, and now it becomes a burden. So I'm, I'm not tasting every word that I'm saying. I'm, I'm taking the, the piece of meat and just swallowing it without much flavor, without much appreciation. And even if I would make myself slow down, this Rosh Hashanah I'm going to accept upon myself that whenever I bench, I'm not going to get up from the table until sitting there 10 minutes with the bencher open, no matter how antsy I am. And I'm going to say every single word methodically and slowly, it doesn't mean that I'm enjoying the process. If we get to a point in life, in our mitzvahs, or anything else that we're engaged in, that the main reason I'm doing it is because I feel like I have to, 
or I want to do it because I'd rather avoid the pangs of guilt that I would feel otherwise, or I'm afraid not to do it, there might be a good, healthy place for Yira. We could speak more about that at a different time. But if my whole life in Judaism becomes just an all, it's a burden, it's something that I have to do, and if I don't do it, I'm going to feel guilty, but I don't develop a real taste and, and, a, and a geschmack for it, likely it's not going to last. We have in the Parsha where it seems to be there's this correlation between many of the calamities that will befall Klal Yisrael based on because we didn't serve Hashem with joy. We were lacking simcha in our avoda, and that's why it sounds like when you read the psukim superficially, that's why all of these terrible things will befall Klal Yisrael. So the question that, that everyone's bothered with is, just because I was lacking joy, just because I didn't have that fire in my soul, but I was still doing everything I was supposed to do, why is that deserving of such a harsh consequence? The basic idea many of the, the commentators explain, it's not just the lack of joy that could detract and take away from the mitzvah that I'm doing, but it's what that leads to. There's no way to continue being meticulous, being sensitive, being medactic in all the mitzvot and my avodas Hashem if I'm not getting joy from that experience and there's no way I'm going to pass that on to my children and my grandchildren. There will not be a continuity of the Mesorah. The Torah itself will be lost. And what the Torah is telling us is, this will lead to terrible things because there is absolutely no way to continue sincere, genuine avodas Hashem if there's not an element of joy involved as well. What did the man taste like? Right? So most people will answer, the man tasted like anything you had in mind. If I was in the mood for mac and cheese, the mun would be just like mac and cheese. If I wanted a tuna sandwich, that's what it would taste like. The Chafetz Chaim used to ask the question, let's say I had nothing in mind whatsoever. What would the mun taste like then? Nothing! <laughs> the taste of this supernatural experience was based on my machshava, based on my thought process. If I'm not thinking anything while consuming the man, so then it's not going to taste like anything. Explain the Chafetz Chaim. This is true with every aspect of life. If I'm not present, I'm not aware, I'm not thinking about what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, it's not going to taste like anything. So true joy, intense joy, comes from being totally focused. Otherwise, we live a life of sleeping zombies. Take it one step further. If you were to ask the question, why do people enjoy watching very scary movies or reading a novel that has a lot of suspense in it? Why does that, that attract me to want to see more, to want to read more? 
Where does that come from? Or why does somebody watch something that's, that's really sad? Right? Sometimes you'll have people, usually more women than men, but not to generalize, people like watching sad movies. Why do you want to get sad? Watch a feel-good movie, assuming it's kosher. Right? But, but why, why are we looking for those emotions? Any ideas? Why am I looking to, to cry? It feels good to feel. It feels good? It feels. Oh, it feels good to feel. You were going to say that. Okay. So this is actually such a deep idea that the Eish Kodesh shares with us. The Eish Kodesh writes in his diary, the Tzav Vezirus, that human beings, obviously, if you were to take a poll, how many of us want to be happy? I think the vast majority would answer, yes, I would love to be happy. Would you want to be happier than you are now? That would be great. But if you were to take a survey, how many of you want to feel sad? Most of us would say, no, I have no interest in feeling sad. Explains the Eish Kodesh. Nefesh ha'adam ohevis lihisragesh. The neshama of a human being loves to feel. Lo al simcha levada, not just feelings of joy. Ragam stam lihisragesh ohevis he. But just to feel anything, I need that, I crave that, I love that. Even to cry, even to feel depressed, I want that. Because I'd rather feel depressed, I'd rather feel a sense of loss than to feel nothing at all. He says that's why we find the strange thing in human nature that people would love to watch a scary movie or read a book with suspense, because we need hargasha, we need feelings. And therefore this creates somewhat of a danger, an opportunity, but also a danger. If I'm not getting those hargashas, I'm not experiencing the gamut of human emotion in my involvement with, with Judaism and my avodas Hashem, then I will look for it elsewhere. It's not a coincidence that if a person chooses to go off the derech, depending on age and circumstance and many other factors, but oftentimes it's not just, you know what, I'm leaving my life of chasidus, I'm cutting my payas, cut my beard, I no longer keep Shabbos, kosher is a thing of the past, but I'm going to tr- transition seamlessly into just a normal, well-adjusted secular citizen of the world. Now, there are many reasons why that's not usually the case, but one reason is I'm not looking to be normal. I'm not looking to be like everyone else and just walk around spaced out. I'm looking to feel that I'm not getting that, that fix within Judaism. I'm going to look elsewhere. And if that means getting involved with a different world, if that means trying external uh, stimulus, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. But we need to feel. There was a time in the later 1920s where, again, the Eish Kodesh writes in his diary, there were many people, many Jews who were suffering greatly from not having parnasa. It was extremely hard to make a living. 
and there was actually a trend of men who were overwhelmed with their family's uh, parnasa, they would commit suicide. So he puts pen to paper and he says, I'll tell you the truth. Don't only cry for those people who have taken their lives, but you should also cry for those people who are alive and walking and breathing, but emotionally, they're not really alive. They used to say about the Kotzke Rebbe that he had so much kedusha, he had so much sanctity, he was able to be machaye mesim. He could bring back the dead. So somebody once asked the Kotzke Rebbe, is that true? Does the Rebbe really have the ability to be machaye mesim? Does the Rebbe have the ability to bring back the dead? And he said, perhaps. But you know what I enjoy even more than that? Is bringing back the live. People who are alive, who are not really alive. That's what I enjoy even more. So in order to maximize the intensity of joy and the intensity of meaning, we have to be fully consumed and present in the moment. And at the same time, to realize it's not just simcha that we're looking for, it's not just feeling good, but we need to be feeling anything. Because the opposite of feeling is numb, is callous, and that means we're not really alive. The great Rav Shlomo Volda, he writes that many people have deep yadios, which means they might have penetrating insights into themselves, into Torah, into Musr. But lichyos ba'omek hu inyan acher, but to live in depth is something that's really entirely different. That's a whole different realm of, of, of expertise. It's one thing to, to, to know what to say, to know some of the, the lofty ideas, but to implement it into how I view the world and how I view myself and my relationship with Hashem, that's a whole different avoda. He writes that, The world itself, everything around us is so incredibly deep. The history is so deep. There's so much. There's so much hashkacha pratis we can see. Looking for the Yad Hashem, the intervention of a Kaddish Baruch Hu throughout history, one who is looking with his eyes open will be in awe. The, the tragic reality is, writes of Shlomo Volba, Mistaklim b'shemayim rakedei ledas im lekachas esa The only reason we look up into the heavens is to see whether or not I have to take an umbrella. But to actually just sit there and gaze at the beauty, at the majestic reality of the vastness of the universe, we don't have time for that. So it's harder to be a balhergish, it's harder to feel, and therefore the nisham is craving more and we're not really giving it what it needs. I still remember when this young fellow being married for a few years, and they were having a rocky time in the marriage, and he told me that they tried a few different therapists. It really was not going anywhere. And eventually, they had a breakthrough. 
He said, this was the, the turning moment in my marriage. And I think from there, Baruch Hashem, things continued to get better. What was that breakthrough? He said, we were together in the room with the therapist, having a conversation, trying to express ourselves. And there was a moment where I, I picked up on how distant my wife felt from me how removed she felt from me. And I started to cry. And I was crying bitter tears. It, it was like, he said, probably five, ten minutes. I couldn't stop. I couldn't respond. I couldn't speak. I was just crying. And he said, that was the turning point. So when he explained, he said, up until that conversation, he, he didn't cry. He was numb. He didn't feel much love in the marriage. He didn't feel much of a connection. And therefore, he didn't feel distant. At the moment that he had this breakthrough, that he actually felt distance, he felt separated, that brought tears to his eyes, that brought on Hargasha. The Hargasha itself, the feeling was obviously painful. But he felt so relieved that he was able to feel something in relation to this marriage. That was the turning point. So what's holding us back? What is holding us back from living fully in spirituality, in our relationships, in Gashmias and enjoying life even in a physical way, what's holding us back? So I have here a few ideas that came to mind. We're not going to delve into them now. And the goal of having these weekly uh, discussions is to really keep it around a half hour so there's not too much to process. But a few ideas here of general me'akvim, general barriers that we have. First and foremost is hergol. Hergol is translated as habit, but what it really is is reinforced mindlessness. Doing the same thing over and over again to the point where I don't even realize, it doesn't even bother me that I'm not thinking about what I'm doing, and it becomes the norm. We become comfortable with the fact that this is how we do things. It doesn't even bother me anymore that it's mindless behavior that's being repeated over and over again. And when I'm 70 and 80 and 90, if you would add all the hours of life where I was totally mindless and totally numb, it would be a very scary number. How many days, how many years of my life was I totally unconscious? And that's starting with the fact that for a third of our lives, we're sleeping. Halavai, a third of our lives. <laughs> Not for most of us. Call it a quarter. <laughs> Slichos are coming up. But... So hergol is, is one major factor that prevents us from feeling alive. Kotzer ruach. Kotzer ruach is the noise, the clutter, the distractions, technology, whatever it may be that's, that's taking us away from the present. That's Kotzer Ruach. We live in a world of distraction. The third is Mochin de Katnus. This is a Kabbalistic term, but translated Mochin de Katnus means we are small-minded. 
We are superficial. I'm only seeing through a very, very narrow prism. Mochin the Katnus. In Slobodka, in the great yeshiva in Slobodka, they used to say, what is the most severe sin you could possibly do? Being a cotton, being small-minded. Being small-minded is the worst sin in the world. Mochin the Katnus holds us back. We don't have the expansive horizons. For many, it could be trauma, tsar, suffering either of the past or of the present. Suffering can either lead to emotional uh, burnout, or as we know, it could bring up philosophical issues that make it harder to work through. Negative association is part of this. I'll give you an example of negative association. If you ask 10 different people whether or not you like a particular melody, one of the classic Jewish melodies going back over 20 years, something from Devekis or Shweki, whatever it is, you'll find very different answers. And even if they all have experience with music and in general they have good taste, how do you define that? I'm not sure. But the reason why they'll give you so many different answers to whether or not I appreciate this melody is based on their association with it. For example, what do you feel when you hear this? Rabbi Yisrael, what, what do you feel when you hear that? What, what's your go-to hargosha? Okay, a, a young Israel. Okay, childhood. Now, some people I've spoken to, they love that. Why? Well, the first time I heard it, I was becoming religious. I was, I was at Eshet Torah, and that's what they sang, and I really got into it. Now, if you were to look at that melody objectively, it's a beautiful melody. It's hard to say. It's, ach, ach. It's, it's gorgeous, but it's all about my association with it. And the same thing is true with any aspect of life or Torah. If I'm coming from a background, if it's family, if it's my father, if it's rebellion that I've had throughout the years, that itself could be another barrier in really living. Pachad. Pachad is anxiety or fear or insecurity. Right? Sometimes we're afraid of searching too much or trying too hard in our Avodah Hashem because either I don't want it to take away certain pleasures that I presently experience. And maybe getting too serious about this can be constriction, can be uh, limiting my, my joy. I mentioned before the conversation I had with a young man who was debating whether or not to go to yeshiva. He was in college here. And he would always speak about the fact he was searching for truth. And after asking him in different ways, so why are you not just going to yeshiva? Try it out. The basic answer was, is that he was afraid to find the truth. So sometimes the pachad, the anxiety, the insecurity of the future can hold us back. Sometimes we have svekos, we have doubts. Either we doubt ourselves or we doubt our perceived reality. That could really be a shakeup. 
And last but not least, we have midos, either character flaws or psychological barriers that makes it difficult for me to jump in all the way and really feel connected, really to live. What happens, though, is, is that when we're not fighting for our chiyas, we're not being proactive in trying to really be alive in every aspect of, of ruchnius and gashmius, we lose the muscles to fight. You know, go back to America when it was difficult to get kosher food and difficult to maintain a job when keeping Shabbos. There was a gavrakite, there was a strength, there was a, a sense of, of mission and sacrifice because I have to fight in order to maintain my, my Jewish identity. When we live in a world where Baruch Hashem, we have so much blessing and, and affluence and there's nothing to fight for, we almost begin to believe there's nothing worth fighting for. And that's a very dangerous place to be. I want to end with the mushal of the log jam, just as really an introduction to our approach throughout the series in Ritzeshem. What is a log jam? Ever wonder that? How do logs get stuck in a river? Where did the logs come from? Who put them there? And how did they get jammed? Right? What? Okay. So generally in the olden days, what they would do, the people in lumber industries, they would cut down the trees. How do you get all of these very heavy trees from point A to point B? You send them down the river. So it's a wonderful, easy, free way of transportation. The problem is, once in a while, one log would get stuck, and then the next one, and the next one, and eventually you would have some pictures here going back to the very, very early 1900s, these massive log jams. And you can't get the logs you need for the lumber. So when you have something like this, tens of thousands of logs that are blocking that flow of water, how do you get through that? Option number one is go to each log individually with a couple of buddies, pick it up, and move it out of the way. And then you go to the next one. And that's a wonderful idea if you had 10,000 years to, to fix the jam. Theoretically, there's another way of solving a log jam, which is if somewhere up the river there's a dam holding back a tremendous amount of water, if you were to open the dam and allow all of those hundreds of thousands of gallons of water to flow down the river, what happens to all of those logs? the water level raises, and almost by definition, mamela, the logs become unstuck. And you have the river back to where it needs to be. Do they all get unstuck by doing that? The answer is no. You'll still need manual labor. So if we've learned nothing else this evening, at least now we know what a log jam is, how it happens, and one potential way of fixing it. The application, though, 
is really our whole methodology here. We're not going to have time to see it together, but Rav, uh, Rav Yitzchak Isaac Sher, who was the great Rosh Hashivah in Slobodka, the son-in-law of the altar of Slobodka, he said, when it comes to working on our Avodah Hashem, you can either focus on all of those issues that are blocking me from my potential, the habits that I have, the reinforced mindlessness, the fear, the anxiety, the doubts. And you can look at each one of those things one by one and try to tackle it and, and destroy it and move it out of the way. Or the other approach is to be misromem, to uplift the human being, to give us a broader hasaga, a broader grasp of what we can be, to elevate ourselves in a way that, that we're more connected with Hashem, that some of the lofty terms that we speak about but never really believe we could implement, like avas Hashem and devekus, becoming close with Hashem, actually having some feelings of, of love for Hashem. All of these things we kind of push aside and say, those are not for me. I, I read about that in, in the Mesilis Yasharim, but it's not really applicable to my life. Or we'll hear people reinforce that this is not in your madrega, you're not there. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes that keeps us down. Says of Isaac Sher, when it comes to Embracing life and feeling the chiyus. This is called Torah's chayim. It's, it's a Torah of life. Not just conceptually, not just academically, but it's taking these principles and actually transforming ourselves through the musr, through the machshava, through the chasidus, whatever it is. We need both of these directions. We need to let the dam down in order for those waters to flow and elevate have a, a vertical shift, so to speak. And at the same time, we have to look at individual issues holding us back. But only through the combination of both will we in Mirza be successful. So there's no official exercise for this week, just an introduction to what we're trying to do. And Mirza I look forward to continuing on the journey together. Have a wonderful evening.